the reading of the scriptures, uh, reading Psalm uh, 28, by your uh, reverent hearing of God's word, uh, both again in reverence and also in faith. Psalm 28, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace through their neighbors, while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. One of the uh, challenges of uh, the Psalter, at least in my own mind, perhaps not to yours, but uh, is, is uh, defining uh, who uh, uh, the enemy is. This psalm obviously is uh, writing about some people who are causing trouble. different ways to approach uh, answer to that question, but uh, I think uh, here they are uh, members of the covenant community who are causing David a measure of uh, strife. So they're within the community itself. That in and of itself is a very difficult uh, question. Uh, But certainly it's uh, part of the church. Within the church, there is the true church. It's always been the case, clear teaching of the scriptures. Uh, and that is, uh, I think, the answer to the question uh, this morning about who the enemy is. Well, they're within the church. Uh, think of our own day. Uh, wasn't too long ago, uh, and yet it uh, continues every day. We read about predators within the church. The predators are within the church. Uh, Within the church, there are those who sanctify immorality. Within the church, that's occurring. Uh, Of course, there's false teachers. Uh, To name just a few, I'm just simply trying to illustrate to you that sometimes uh, the enemies are from within. And David gives us, in our psalm this morning, uh, a way, just a way, not comprehensive way, but a way to identify them, as well as a way to respond to them. And both of those, again, uh, raise many, many questions. 
uh, because we are imperfect in identification. So I'm suggesting to you, David is only going to give us a way, and yet we must be profoundly careful about that way. But he is going to tell us explicitly as to how to respond to them. The, the psalm, in terms of its classification, is, I'm sure you can tell simply by the reading, is a lament psalm. David is in lament over uh, what is occurring uh, in the covenant community. Uh, and he sees that as a threat to the community at large. That the threat, again, from, is from within, uh, in my own mind, is, is discernible from the psalm. If you look at verse 3, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Uh, so he's dealing on uh, the horizontal plane of uh, the community and uh, these men and women are speaking peace uh, as we are bid to speak peace to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but there's something wrong. There's evil in their hearts. They, they wish to do harm. Uh, and that occurs in the church. Uh, they come to uh, seek entrance by speaking peace, but they do incredible harm. Uh, you know, on, on the single issue of predation, occasionally I'll read in the newspaper about people who decades ago were the subject of, of the predators and just the incredible anguish. I mean, sometimes people speak peace, but they do incredible harm. And, and yes, it occurs within the church, and here David is speaking to it. Uh, there, is, there is another uh, illustration of this, if you turn back to Psalm 26 and verse 4. Uh, David is talking about going, if you will, to worship God. Uh, in our parlance, we might say he's going to church, he's going to the tabernacle. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go in with pretenders. There's pretense in church sometimes. Uh, I'm not suggesting uh, I have any better way of identifying them than anybody else. I, I really don't try to breach that question, but David does. Uh, he doesn't want to sit with pretenders. Uh, or you could call them fakers. I don't know, hypocrites. Uh, pick a label. I'm going to stick with simply pretenders because David uses that uh, in Psalm 26. It's literally to hide or to cover up. Uh, it's like when I was in the army. We, we occasionally painted our faces. Uh, camouflage that we would look like something uh, that we were not. Uh, to masquerade as a, a bush or a tree. And, uh, sometimes people come and they, they wear pretense. Uh, they don't wear camouflage, but they are camouflaging their hearts while speaking peace. And that's an incredible threat uh, because what they wish to do in their hearts it's not the matter of the heart per se, it's what the heart wants to accomplish. 
that is profoundly, sometimes profoundly evil. Uh, so an illustration of this in the history of warfare that perhaps uh, might shed some light on what I'm trying to say. In 1936, in the Civil War in Spain, a nationalist general who was advancing upon the city of Madrid said, uh, I have four columns advancing on the city, but I have a fifth column within the city. He had his people within the city uh, to uh, try to bring it down as well. And sometimes that fifth column perished the thought. Uh, I understand the difficulty of the subject, but it's David's subject, not mine. Perished the thought, that column is within the church. Has, has breached the fellowship of the church uh, as men and women uh, speak peace. Remember, a good friend of mine was a uh, professor at a very well-known evangelical undergraduate school. Whenever I hear this school spoken of, it's always in the most glowing of terms. Uh, my friend would tell me, I'll go to faculty meetings and I'll hear the sanctified words like people would speak to you in church, but when I leave, the knives are all over my back because he was a very orthodox Christian held to the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God. Uh, put him in the minority. People wished him harm. He got so fed up with the politics of it, uh, he simply left. Now I understand you might think of that as a secular university. This is a Christian university, very popular, very well known. Uh, marvelous stature, but you know, tell it not in Gath. Sometimes the fifth column has breached even the most popular of uh, Christian undergraduate schools. Imagine being a Christian, for example, uh, and being a part of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA. As you, as you watch them move more and more uh, into progressiveness of our culture, if you were there and you took a stand, they would come for you. I don't know how, but I just simply know they would come for you. Imagine being a Christian, for example, in the uh, United Methodist Church. Is it, again, is moving more and more to the left? Their recent convocation, uh, what saved it from lurching uh, all the more was the African bishops come and uh, uh, voting against what the American church wanted. Uh, exclusive uh, inclusion of everyone and everything, no holes barred. Well, you can't get there from Scripture, but they get there. It's almost as if the fifth column owns the city already. And it happens in the church. David's going to speak to it. Uh, the, uh, the threat of the pretenders, if you understand my use of that word from Psalm 26.4, of men who come and they want to cover their actions with soft, gentle words, uh, speak words to masquerade what they really want to do. Uh, that threat causes David uh, in verses 1 and 2 to pray. Uh, in verses 3 to 5, the threat causes uh, David to, to call out to God to, uh, to spare him and to take them in judgment. 
Uh, and then he praises God for answering his prayer, verses 6 to 8. And then he closes in praying for his people. Uh, so let's begin with the prayer. David recognizes the pretenders. And so troubles him, he prays. Notice the uh, first verb you come to, I call. He's calling upon God in prayer. And uh, it is a wonderful illustration by way of application that there are always threats. The fifth column is always present. And you ought to be praying all the time. Uh, and that is what uh, David is doing because subversion from within is a grave danger. Uh, the enemy wants to own the church, destroy it for what it stands for. And oftentimes it comes in uh, under the mask of camouflage uh, to destroy. Uh, and so uh, David, David's confidence is shaken by the danger. And he does something that you and I ought to be doing all the time. That he prays uh, in light of the danger. And so he says uh, in his confidence in God that God is his rock. God is the immovable object. When everyone else is in retreat, God is not. Uh, that God is a place of safety, a refuge. He's someone you can build your life on. Everything else seemingly is shifting sand, but not God. So he takes refuge in God who is his rock. Uh, in the midst of the danger, uh, if you will, to use a nautical metaphor, the tides are sweeping people out uh, to deep waters. And oftentimes people don't have a clue as to what's going on, but David does. And he holds on to the rock that will keep him from being swept away. And uh, that's what uh, the enemy within sometimes uh, does. It's seeking to sweep you away. So David, uh, David, uh, gravitates uh, to God who is his rock. And he asks God in his prayer not to be silent. Uh, it's really a figure of speech. He, he's really saying, God, answer me. Uh, we, don't, we don't typically think in that language when we, we, we pray because we, you know, we're taught that uh, we're, we're God's people. He hears our prayers. And he does, but David is so troubled by the danger. Uh, he's He's asking God to answer. Uh, answer my prayer because the danger is so great. Even, ladies and gentlemen, in the church, sometimes the danger is great. And uh, most people, uh, if they're not have any theological sophistication whatsoever, don't have a clue as to how dangerous it is. Uh, David does. And he asks God, uh, to answer his prayer because of the danger. And he acknowledges that if God is unresponsive, he will become like the ungodly. That's how desperate his prayer is. God, if you don't, if you don't respond in a sense of immediacy, I'll become like them. See, sometimes a church, it's a dangerous place. People begin to transform us. God should transform us. But sometimes... Uh, People begin to transform us uh, because they come to transform us. They come to make us over uh, if, if they're the enemy. Uh, and uh, 
David says, God, if you don't intervene, I'll become like them in death. So that's how sharp his prayer is. Uh, it's a reminder that uh, David has a grave sense of the danger. I don't sense that when I talk to people who, who uh, go to some churches that I sometimes wonder about. I do that a lot, but I, I sometimes do. Like yesterday, I read the, the paper and a couple of uh, churches here in Oklahoma City in the religion section were paraded, uh, extolled in their virtue of their progressivity. Well, that's just code word for lurching to the left with everything you got. No, about being progressive. And, you know, and we're a bunch of state old Calvinists, you know, still on the turnip truck. Everyone else is progressing into inclusion of everyone and everything, including immorality. And uh, it's a dangerous place to be. But why some people remain, I don't understand. I'm just praying that God would protect me in a sense of the overwhelming nature that David brings to this issue. Uh, he, he is standing before the Holy of Holies, so he's at the tabernacle. Uh, Holy of Holies where God uh, is, is present. And he asks God to intervene. Uh, really praying, God, hear me. But the content of his prayer, it's a figure of speech. Of course, God hears. God hears, uh, hears our words even before they come off our tongue. He knows them, Psalm 139. So God knows everything, but really, God intervene, act, because the danger is so great. So the essence of the prayer is for God, God, God to respond. And it is a reminder that if 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 there is no divine intervention, all of us are in a bad way. Even our church is in a bad way. Uh, because the world seeks to destroy uh, the church. The true church wants to destroy it. Uh, in some countries, that's physical destruction. Uh, you and I don't think in these terms, but if we were a Christian in North Korea, I bet this psalm would be on your top ten list. We don't live in North Korea, but nonetheless, they seek to transform us, uh, make us over, change our theology, uh, and if not, threaten us. I was talking with a neighbor of mine. Uh, he and I have diametrically opposed theology, but uh, that's okay. Still be a Christian and be gracious to him. And... and uh, uh, I asked him a fairly honest question. Uh, so many prominent politicians belong to your church, and yet they're for infanticide. How does that work out, by the way? I said, how come the bishops don't withhold access to the sacrament of the Lord's table from them? His answer was revealing. It's because they're afraid the politicians will, will take away... Uh, Deductions, as if, what do we do? We, we sell our faith for a dollar? So if I can't deduct my gift to the church, that's more dangerous than preventing uh, infanticide within the church? I, I didn't understand that, but I'm still on the turnip truck. I, 
told him I, I thought infanticide was uh, a grave issue and that when people confessed openly to belong to the church and uh, they are engaging in infanticide, to me, that's about as grave a threat as could be because there's nothing more innocent than unborn child or a child that's recently been born but finds itself on the chopping block. But those things come into the church and we're so fearful of being able to deduct our gifts to the church that we will, we will cave. And that's what they want to do, intimidate us to go along and get along. That's what David's confronting in some, some measure. And so the pretenders in verses 3 to 5 cause David to pray. It's a very interesting prayer that he be spared, that they be taken in judgment. David senses, because of the danger, some measure of liability. Now, in a cosmic sense, of course, Christians will never be taken in judgment. But, but David senses that threat and the violence of it. Uh, and his. The content of this prayer is, is that he be not he not be taken in judgment. Do not, verse 3, do not drag me away with the wicked. He knows explicitly that God will come for the wicked someday. He doesn't know when, and you and I don't know when. He only knows that he will come. He says, Don't don't drag me with them, Lord. It is a reminder that who you run with is profoundly important. Uh, I understand. We, we, we work in a secular place and we, there's nothing wrong. We work with non-Christians. We should be gracious to them. We should share the gospel with them. Uh, but one thing we cannot let them do, and that's make our faith over. And sometimes that occurs in church. Who you run with matters. It's a profound uh, uh, impact uh, because people want to conform us to their image rather than the image of God. So David is saying, separate me from them so that when you come for them in judgment, I won't be dragged away with them. Those are profoundly powerful words because we don't think in those terms. Do not drag me away with the wicked. David is sensing the pull of the gravity that they bring to the church. So again, who, who you're in league with matters. Uh, where you go to church matters. So we don't think in those terms, to be sure. It's, well, any place works. But progress, progressivity is everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, certainly even in Reformed denominations. It's incredible. Uh, and our lust for numbers will give up almost everything. But David isn't thinking in those terms. He's thinking in the terms there's judgment. What you believe matters profoundly. And David want, doesn't want to be in their orbit because he knows it will come under destruction. It's explicit that God will come. He doesn't want to be included with them. Uh, by the way, one of the reasons it matters where you go to church, and that is the continual hearing of the Word of God, is that the Word of God would, would have an unbridled place in your heart. The Word of God would search you and sift you. So that if you're a pretender, your mask will be taken off and you'll bow before 
the majesty of the only Redeemer. And we need the Word to do that. Because sometimes our hearts turn hard and the Word of God is like a hammer that smashes the rock. Only the power of the Word of God can do that. And that's why the continual treatment of the Word of God is so important on a consistent basis. The hearing of the Word. Because it's from the hearing of the Word that faith comes. Salvation comes. Again, faith and trust in Christ. But notice how, notice how again, how, he, how David describes them in verse 3. They speak peace with their neighbor while evil is in their heart. So David is telling us it's not just their words. I've been telling you that words profoundly matter. Profoundly matter. Here David says it's not their words, uh, but rather the plans and intentions of their heart, what they want to do. So that uh, words matter and so do works. And he knows the work that they want to do within the church. Now, I'm not, again, suggesting that every church has predators and every church has false teachers. I just know that there is a danger from within and David is, is confronting it. It's within his own, his own tribe. And uh, he knows pretenders are present. It's like the nationalist general. He had a fifth column within the city uh, to effect destruction. That who you run with matters. Works matter, words matter. A key to identifying the thread is they use words. Doesn't really tell us what kind of words. I suspicion, it's only my speculation. It's found elsewhere in Scripture, but can't be authoritative on what is not explicit, but I, I suspect it's flattery. Because all of us like to hear people engage us with flattery. Simply human nature. Uh, and we need, to, we need to be aware. Sometimes people uh, dress up their words uh, so that they can get to our hearts with flattery, to mask the intention of their hearts. Uh, and so their words matter because they're camouflaged. Uh, so that uh, what their hearts eventually want to do uh, causes us to let down our guard and that we become the prey. And uh, more often than not in the American church, uh, it's to inject uh, what is unorthodox. And uh, that's how Satan works. And uh, he likes to act undercover and he likes just to take a little bit at a time. Uh, and so he engages us a little bit at a time uh, to slowly over time transform us. Uh, you and I know something that David knows, and that is that the heart will eventually reveal itself. Uh, it's just simply that there is a fifth column within the church, and it is not neutral. Regardless of its words, it's not neutral. It seeks our harm. I mean, think about it in terms of the great biographies of the Scripture. Uh, Jesus had, had Judas. David had Ahithophel. 
Uh, Paul says, uh, empty chapter, second, uh, empty chatter, second Timothy chapter two. Uh, resist empty chatter because it'll spread like gangrene. And by the way, he's speaking within the church. Uh, words become like gangrene. Uh, they destroy. And ultimately, if it reaches a, a point, all you can do is amputate. It's the point of the figure of speech. Empty chatter. Uh, I, was, I was struck by our speaker this weekend. Uh, one of the questions uh, was a man who had seven granddaughters. And they're in a Sunday school class, and they're taught in their Sunday school chat class to chase your dreams. Now, I understand that at the elementary school level. That's, that's what our kids are being taught. Chase your dreams. What about chasing the glory and the majesty of the holiness and the power and the eternal immutable perfections of the grandeur of the only God who has no competitors, who brooks no competition? You want to chase something? Chase him. In a Sunday school class, chase your dreams. You ought to be teaching. There ought to be just one object of our affections, and that is who God is. We would bow before him. But tell it not in Gath. That's what his granddaughters were learning in Sunday school, in church. Again, I understand we all have dreams. Nothing wrong with dreaming. Just take them to God and ask Him to bless them or to turn you away. Nothing wrong with that per se. You might argue with the presentation of it. Uh, but we, we gather our dreams and what Scripture tells us. Uh, and David is enraptured by, by God. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him for his works. He was a colleague at some point in Paul's ministry. Uh, he harmed the apostle Paul. I don't know how he gained access to Paul. Words, but eventually his heart tripped the trigger and he harmed Paul. That's the warning of our text. The column within. Though you and I may not be able to see the heart, we're all susceptible to flattery. Uh, but it's wise to be on guard. Secondly, uh, David, uh, David prays uh, for God to destroy them, verses 4 to 5. In David's case, they've made themselves evident. And David calls for divine judgment. Look at the text, uh, verse, verse 4. Uh, the Greek text is literally give them. New American Standard reads requite them. Give them. Uh, give them. He repeats himself. And then repay them. What is their due? 
And notice what is their due is based upon not their words. Words matter. But so do, wor so do works. He turns upon their works, their actions. It's another identity key. Uh, notice again verse 4. According to their work. According to the evil of their practices. The deeds of their hands. So he's, he started with words. He's warning us about flattery. Eventually the point is that evil intentions of their heart that they're going to seek to put in motion. And David prays for judgment. Another identity key, the, the heart is unseen, but works are seen, and evidence of what is in the heart. And I understand, you and I have to be very careful here. We don't walk around examining people's works, but when there's danger from within, we need to be careful, because sometimes uh, they work to do our harm. And he looks at works according to their work, according to their evil practices, according to their dealings. David's praying for a separation and a division. Uh, his reason is because, yeah, verse 5, they, they have no regard for the works of the Lord. Now that is a profoundly important statement. They have their works and God has His works and His works are preeminent. Only God can save. Only God can affect sanctification. The work of the Lord is the preeminent thing that we give our hearts to. Not the evil works of men. Uh, that sometimes seek to pervert the words of God. Words matter and so do works. Uh, and if you disregard the works of the Lord, uh, you're in a bad way. You're in a bad place. And it never comes that explicitly. It comes in pennies and nickels and dimes. Because... Satan is very subtle. Uh, and yet David is looking at their works. And I would simply remind you over and over again that his works are causative to our salvation. That is why we must honor his works above all. And then notice, uh, notice what he says, uh, his invective upon them. Latter part of verse 5, he will tear them down and not build them up. A very profound uh, figure of speech uh, because the implied comparison is to God as a demolition crew. Uh, dismantle them, God. And don't put them back together. Profound imprecation. Uh, it's another theological problem in the Psalms. Uh, imprecation. You and I can't pray that way, but in the Old Testament they did. Uh, uh, the greater lawgiver than Moses, uh, Jesus, Matthew 5.44, love your, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. David is cutting to the eternal chase. Destroy him. You and I pray differently. God save them. Uh, pray for them. Rescue them. Uh, we pray for those who persecute us. Even though they seek our harm. Even though they pervert our words change our theology. We, we pray for them. We simply cannot pray in the way that David has, but it's part of the uh, imprecation of the Old Testament. A greater lawgiver comes and says, love them uh, and uh, pray for your enemies. But that does not mean we give them access to our sacraments and our pulpits. The, uh, the, 
The pretenders, however, will encounter God in, in the end time judgment. That's one of the things that is comforting David. He, know God, he knows that God will come for them and make a separation. Uh, you know, the great, great parable of the sower. God sows his word and Satan comes and sows a different word and they both grow together. And uh, they come to Jesus and say, well, should we go separate the two? And he says, no. Angels at the end of the age will separate them. It's simply going to grow together. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell who the tares are. I'm not suggesting that we can maybe even ever know we just take wisdom from David knowing that there's a fifth column from within and we need to be careful because if they're within, eventually the evil intentions of their hearts uh, will betray who they are. Uh, but, uh, but again, it is, uh, it is the reminder that, uh, that, that God will come and he will deal with them according to their works. Uh, by the way, uh, something very interesting here about uh, the purifying uh, effect of uh, the pretenders. They're in the church, but there is a place where they're not. Turn in your New Testament to Revelation 13. There is a place that they are not. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who's been slain. They can say their name is in that book all they want to. Uh, but pretenders are not in that book. And uh, only God can put them there and only God can affect their salvation. Isn't it interesting that his eternal decrees mark out his own? He keeps them for himself. Same thing is uh, true in Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. You know why in terms of application the purity of your life is incredibly important because it's, it's not causative of your salvation but it's evidence that your name is there and that's unchangeable. The gifts and the calling of God the Apostle Paul says are irrevocable. Thanks be to God that it is so. We... Uh, we know and love Jesus Christ and we wish that our works to advance his name as evidence that our names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Words matter, works matter. They're not causative of salvation, but they're evidence. And that's one of the ways to identify the fifth column. Uh, Knowing that God will judge the pretenders causes David to bless and praise God for answering his prayer. Verses 6 to 8. Once again, we don't know the particulars of the answer, but 
uh, David is acknowledging that God has answered his prayer. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. God answered him. I, I will tell you, if you pray for protection of the church, God will answer it. That is what God does. He protects his people, preserves and protects them. Uh, but maybe there's someone you need to pray for, that they're in a bad place, in a bad way, hearing bad words around bad men and women, that God would rescue them. And maybe you're the agent to do that. I don't know. But God heard David's prayer. And notice, notice the ability of God to answer prayers. Uh, one of the reasons we pray to him, verse, verse 7, the Lord is my strength. Uh, same thing uh, uh, reminds us of the power of God. The Lord is my strength, my power to keep and to preserve me from the pretenders. Perhaps to use me to rescue someone from the pretenders. He's my shield. Shield is for protection. God protects us. I mean, I would tell you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, that if God was not protecting you, you would be swept away so quickly you cannot imagine how quickly you would defect. That's how powerful the world is. And it's sirens to gather you into its orbit. God, God is our shield. He protects and defends His own. The last description is uh, uh, profoundly uh, beautiful. It's a saving defense to His anointed. Different translation has the word refuge. Uh, it's literally... Refuge of salvations makes it plural. It kind of grates on our ears, but salvations come to us every day. God rescues us every day. His mercy and kindness knocks on our door every day. Protect us and keep us. Greek translation of the Old Testament has protector. You and I have a protector. If we didn't, the enemy would breach our castle and plunder us and take everything. David's praising God for answering his prayer. I wish I knew the answer. How it happened. I simply don't know. What we do know is who God is. And he is uh, omnipotent and he protects his own. Uh, but you and I ought to thank God every day for saving us from pretense. Because sometimes we get full of ourselves too. Pride can carry us away. And we can presume. And the only ultimate antidote for presumption, God is our protector. That God is the ultimate answer of our danger. And we should thank him uh, publicly and privately for his power in protecting us. So uh, David called and God answered. Uh, but then in the final verse, uh, the presence of the pretenders causes David to close in prayer for the righteous remnant. God has answered David, but he turns to pray for others. Great illustration for us. We ought to be praying continually for people who are growing much too close to the boundary line. Walking way too close 
to the boundary. That's essence of David's prayer. He, he turns to, to pray for his own. Uh, the prayer is centered on four imperatives or requests. The first, I love. Savior people. Sometimes we do foolish things. Sometimes we get too close to the orbit. It begins to draw us in. Savior people. Uh, it's almost a powerful emotion. Uh, he just cuts to the chase. I mean, we might pray something like, God, you know, awaken my son or my daughter to their danger. David cuts to the chase. Save, Lord. Save now. Save today. And that's what God does to his people. Only he can. And he does. Salvation, a sense of rescue. You know, when I was, uh, I was in the army, uh, some of the most respected community in the army were the medevac pilots. You got in trouble, they came. Well, uh, sometimes we get in trouble. God comes to save. Uh, secondly, bless your people. Your inheritance. We belong to God. We're his people. Bless your people. Again, absent divine blessings, you and I uh, would blow up in a heartbeat. How desperately we need God, His grace, majesty. Uh, thirdly, my favorite, uh, be their shepherd. Much like the 23rd Psalm, I believe it's an implied simile. In form, it might be a metaphor, but implied simile. Because God is like a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Uh, he leads his sheep to pastures to feed. God would lead us to his word, to feed upon his word, to satisfy our souls. The shepherd is the protector. Uh, the wolves come for the flock. They always come for the flock. And the shepherd is always there. The defense for ultimate safety. Be their shepherd. Uh, lastly, the, uh, uh, the final imperative request before God. Beyond being their shepherd is carry them forever. And that, my friend, is quite pointed because if God's not carrying you, you are in a dangerous way. It's a profound appeal to the gospel that we have a shepherd to the dangers of this life from men who masquerade with false words. So much so that they can get at our hearts and we can be swept away. And, and David is saying, carry them forever. The ultimate realization that the ultimate difference between us and pretense is the sovereign majesty, the power of God who carries his sheep. I, I liken a shepherd as leading the sheep, but here the shepherd is carrying them because they're in such a bad way. The total 
absolute perfection that they're in his arms. And nothing can violate the power of his arms. That, my friend, is a compelling reason to know the Savior, to study the Savior, to commend your soul to the Savior, because only He can get you to a dangerous world. This language, by the way, we've studied going through the book of Isaiah. The great breach. Isaiah chapter 40, that begins to change the tone. Uh, the promise of, uh, of uh, a new exodus out of Babylon. By the way, how'd they get in Babylon? Listening to false words from false teachers and engaging in idolatry. Where you are and who you're with matters. Words matter and works matter. Uh, notice Isaiah 40.11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. The promise of the uh, exodus for you and for me, it's the end time exodus. That we are on the greatest pilgrimage of the world and God is carrying us. No, we're not just skipping along holding his hand. He is carrying us. Uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 46. Verses 3 and 4. Uh, even to your old age, I shall be the same. And even to your graying years, I shall bear you. I've done it. I shall carry you, and I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. You think you ought to know the Lord in life? I think so. Verse 5, to whom would you liken me? Uh, verse 4, verse 3, pardon me, is just profound. You've been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. The power of God for His people. He births us. He nurtures us. You know the context of this, this chapter? He's talking about idolatry. People carry their idols. If you have to carry God, He's not God. God doesn't need to be carried. The point of the text of all these people and all their religious ceremonies who have their standards and they're carrying some God around, if they're having to do that, it's not God because God can't be carried. He doesn't need to be carried. The point of the text is He carries us. If He doesn't carry us, we'll get lost and wander and get sucked into the orbit of the black stars. Greatness of our God. He mounts the greatest rescue operation of all time to come to carry His people, to get them to the end. So, my friends, it's a great, it's a great psalm. Psalm of danger. Also a psalm acknowledging that uh, we have a God who sees us through it. And so we should praise Him. Yes, we need to be on our guard. Yes, we must be careful with words. Our words and the words of the enemy. and Our works and the works of the enemy. We must love. We must preach perseverance. We must pray for the danger profoundly real and intense. And we must praise God for rescuing 
us and carrying us to the end.